You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to make your way to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you forgot your Bible this morning. We do have some on the back table back there. Please grab one if you you need one this morning. But Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Our sermon text is going to be verses 14 through 28. Before I read our passage for this morning, I want to ask you to consider a question. A question that I sincerely have spent probably countless hours over the years pondering. It's often a question I have pondered late at night in my bed. Answering this question for me, wrestling with this question for me is both personal and pastoral. Here's the question. If Jesus really is who the Bible says He is, He's the Savior of the world, the Lord of heaven and earth, the fount of eternal life, then why doesn't everybody who comes into contact with Him worship Him and love Him as they ought? Or to put it a little differently, if Jesus is worthy of worship, then why do people reject Him and oppose Him instead of bow down and worship before Him? As a pastor, this is a question I care much about. Have you pondered this question yourself? Have you wondered why certain friends or family members or co-workers or people you come in contact with, they, they hear the message of the gospel and they reject Jesus. Why? If He's so glorious, why? Or maybe you wrestled with this question, why, why are there certain friends and family members or co-workers, people that once made a profession of faith and now they have fallen away and no longer follow after Jesus. For some of you here this morning, this question is really personal to you. Because right now, you are not personally following after Jesus. And yet you wonder why people you know and love and respect and trust, why they're so passionate about Jesus and you're not. You want to be. You respect and admire them. But you think, what am I missing? I hear the same messages. It seems to move them. But it didn't do much for me. Church, over the next several weeks, we're going to be spending time reflecting on this particular 
question because the rest of chapter 11, just to give you a preview, the rest of chapter 11 into chapter 12 addresses this very topic. Why do people either oppose Jesus or at least put him off? Why do, why do people, some hear and completely oppose him, and others hear and say, against them, but I, I just don't feel the need. Why do some oppose, and why do others put them off? There are many benefits for, from thinking about this question and, and wrestling with it and coming to an answer from Scripture. I just want to name two on the front end. This is going to benefit us over the next several weeks as we reflect on this question. One of the ways it's going to benefit us, it's going to help us evangelistically. That's Pastor Jack just prayed a moment ago. We, we have a, a privilege, an opportunity, and a responsibility to share the gospel with those who, who don't believe, who don't have eternal life, who don't know that they're forgiven of their sins only because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not because they're good enough. It's not because they've done enough good that outweighs the bad. It's only through the finished work of Jesus. Well, who's going to tell them? How will they know? unless we open our mouths. And I think for these next few weeks, we're, we're, we're going to be able to think through how, how can we be better evangelists and share the gospel more effectively. And I pray that by thinking about this topic, it will cause us to all be more convinced of Christ's greatness and His glory, and therefore more committed to Him and His kingdom. The title of my message today is Convinced and Committed. It's what we're going to be talking about today from our passage before us. Luke chapter 11 verses 14 through 28. Church, before I begin reading, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Now, instead of just reading the entire passage all the way through, I just want to Take it piece by piece. And I want to begin in verse 14 that sets the setting for this entire passage. Verse 14 reads, Now he, being Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. Now, in verse 14, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And last week, we looked at chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And in here we come to verse 14. And if we're paying attention, if we're, if we're awake, this seems like a very abrupt transition from last week. Last week, Jesus is telling His disciples how to pray. And then all of a sudden, we come to verse 14, and we hear about Jesus healing a man. And he heals this man who was unable to speak by casting out a demon that was basically keeping him from being able to talk. And as you can imagine, this, this whole event caused quite the excitement and it gained a crowd. As you can imagine, Jesus doing this publicly, people see it. People probably knew this man, knew he was unable to talk. Now, his lips are loosed. He's able to speak. And that wasn't one of these events you just see and just go about your business. It caused quite a stir. 
But we must be aware the excitement on that day in light of that event wasn't all positive, to say the least. Sometimes when Luke uses the word, a word he likes to use, the word marvel. That's what we see at the end of verse 14. The people marveled. Sometimes when Luke uses that word, he uses it positively to speak of people having admiration. But sometimes he uses this word to speak of nothing more than excitement or intense interest. Something's happened and it's so amazing you just can't move on. But it's not necessarily saying that people's response was good. It was just saying it got a response. This thing, this event was just so incredible. Everybody in the room was like, whoa, did everybody see that? And that's what's happening here in this passage. Because what we're going to read in verse 15 and 16, let us know that this event, though it caused quite a stir, it didn't get two thumbs up from everyone. Look at verses 15 and 16. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. (laughs) So here's Jesus. He heals this man by casting out this demon, everybody that saw it is affected by it. But not all for the good. Some, we're not told how many, and we're not told exactly who this group of people are, but it was numerous people, numerous people in the crowd. They accused Jesus, get this, they accused Jesus of being involved in satanic magic. That's basically what they're accusing him of. They're not saying this is a miracle done by the power of God. They're saying Jesus is in cahoots with with the powers of darkness and he's calling on the prince of demons. He's done satanic magic. So they see this miracle. They don't give him glory. They're wondering and even murmuring among themselves. that That must have come from a wicked source. And yet others, others who saw the exact same miracle, were not so slanderous in what they said. They were a little bit more subtle in their suspicion. They saw what Jesus did, and it made them skeptical. And they said, the jury's still out. We need more signs. We're not willing to say that was from Satan, but we're not sure he's still from God. We're not sure how he does what he does and why he did what he did. That's why beginning in verse 17, Jesus is going to address this slanderous accusation that he's being used by Satan. And then in verses 29 through 32, he's going to address those in the crowd who are more skeptical, and we're going to come back to that passage and that response next week. So Jesus isn't going to address the second group today. Next week, He's going to come back and say, okay, let me address those who say, we need more signs. We're we're still not sure. You got our attention, but we're not willing to sign off that this came from God. 
But Jesus is going to begin by addressing this slanderous, outrageous accusation that some people had as they saw him do this miracle. And listen how Jesus responds to what has happened and their response. Notice two things are going to happen in verses 17 through 19. Jesus is going to bring supernatural insight to bear. And He's going to bring clear, simple, compelling logic. Both of those are about to be entered in as He now brings up this accusation that some in the crowd are saying, we we think He's actually doing this satanically. Verses 17 through 19. I just want to begin by reading the beginning of 17 where it says, but he, being Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. Now stop right there. At this point, whoever said we need more signs, how about this sign for you? I know what you're thinking. <laughs> See, we must not read this just because it says they were saying this. They're not saying it out loud where Jesus can hear it. So Jesus knows that there are folks in the crowd, they may be talking amongst themselves, but they're not saying this where he could have heard it. There are others that are like, man, we don't think that, but we're still not sure he's from the Messiah. And Jesus, before he addresses it, says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're wrestling with. That that should have been enough for them. But Jesus continues on. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Do you, do you see what Jesus just did? He's saying, if, if I'm doing what you're accusing me of doing, how would that work? Let's just stop and have a moment of common sense and bring logic to bear. Why would Satan who loves to torment people as he tormented this poor man. Why would he cast out a demon in my name, free this man whom he was oppressing? Why would he do that? That makes absolutely no sense. That would be like a kingdom at war within its own borders. If there was a kingdom that was fighting within, that kingdom would eventually destroy itself. Why would Satan use me, though I say I'm of another kingdom, why would he allow me to then remove this demon from this man, heal him, and set him free? He said it's it's not just like a kingdom that's divided. It's like a household that's divided by factions. If that was the case, you know what's going to be true of that household? Eventually that household is going to destroy itself. So why, why would that be the case? In other words, Jesus is saying your your reasoning is not logical. 
Oh, there's a lot of heat to your accusations, but there is no light. Boy, isn't that true a lot in our culture today? A lot of heat, but very little light. Man, they, they, I mean, to call Jesus, basically to say you, you've committed miracles by using satanic power, that's pretty, that's pretty far. And Jesus is saying, if you even stop for a second, thought about what you were saying, it makes no sense. But then he goes on in verse 20. And he's basically saying to them, as we're going to see in verse 20, instead of believing what you do, I want to appeal to you to, to be open to an alternative explanation. An alternative explanation that is rooted in the story of the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Exodus. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 20. But, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, okay, so I've already pricked a hole in your your argument to show you what you just said made no sense. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is, is simple. What I just did proved that my power is a demonstration of the power of God and the kingdom of God. And Jesus actually uses this phrase about the finger of God. And it, it's most likely a, a reference, an allusion to Exodus chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. If you recall the story when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. And the Pharaoh is not listening. So God says, I'm going to show signs and wonders to Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron do a miracle and turn water into blood. Well, the Pharaoh says, I've got some magicians. They can do the same. And they do the same. And Pharaoh says, see, I'm not listening. Then they do another miracle, Moses and Aaron. And the magician says, we got that one too. And then God says, I'm going to bring another plague. He brings a severe plague of gnats that just are are just infestation. I can't even imagine what that would have been like that are just tormenting the people and the animals. And the magicians couldn't do that. And from their own mouth, do you know what they say to the Pharaoh? They did that by the finger of God. And Jesus uses that same reference to say, you want a sign? You say you need a sign? How about what I just did points the power of God and to the finger of God. See, that's how we're to see this event. What Jesus did when he set this man free, when he healed him, it was a sign from God that Jesus' kingdom has come. And his kingdom is at war with the kingdom of darkness and evil. That's why he goes on to say in verses 21 through 22, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than that, 
then he attacks him and overcomes him. He will take away his armor in which he trusted and divide his spoil. Think about up to this point as we've made our way through the Gospel of Luke. Think about all the times up to this point where Jesus has cast out evil spirits. We've we've already had a number of passages up to this point where we have seen Jesus go into cities, go into villages. Some, Some situations have gotten more than just a general summary statement that He healed people and He cast out demons. Some we're given more details on. Or think about Luke chapter 4. The ultimate showdown. Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. And Jesus comes out victorious. He does not give in to temptation. He does not sin. Here's the question. What was Jesus doing in all those moments? What was He doing in all those moments when He set people free? When He cast out these demons. What was He doing? Besides what he was doing to show care and mercy to those who were being tormented. Here's what he was doing. He was demonstrating that he is the stronger man. Plundering the house of his enemy. And defeating the kingdom of his enemy. That's why Jesus shares this analogy. He says, imagine there's a strong man. He's mighty. And he guards his palace. And no one can touch what he does. Until someone stronger comes along and defeats him. And Jesus was basically saying, that's what's happening. That's what I am doing. If you recall back in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus sent out the 70 and they come back rejoicing of the many things that happened. And one of the things they rejoiced in is, Jesus, we're casting out demons and they're, they're leaving. Just like you said they would in your name. And in chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said that he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. What's that a picture of? Defeat. Jesus is saying, I saw Satan metaphorically falling out of the sky like lightning. It's not just that he fell out of the sky, I mean, he's just coming down, thud. Jesus has come to overcome the evil one. It's what we were singing about earlier in some of the songs we sang this morning. His kingdom is greater. He is stronger. Therefore, He will destroy the kingdom of the evil one. That's that's what Jesus is proving here when He heals this man. Now, what does Jesus do once he deals with their accusations? He could have just moved on, but what he says in verse 23 should cause us to pause. He ends his argument with these words. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me Scatters. Do 
Jesus did not say all that he has just said in light of these accusations simply to defend himself. He has said all that he has said in order to call for a decision. In some ways, he could care less what these mere mortals, the one who has lived in eternity, present and past, who's never had a beginning, but took on flesh to save. He didn't care less what they think of him. So he didn't need to defend himself. He does it for their benefit to call them to a decision. He basically says, you're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. Friends, what you're about to hear this morning is the very reasons we come to church on Sunday mornings because it's not anything you're going to hear in the world. It's not going to, you're not going to hear it in the news. You're not going to hear it on a podcast. There are two kingdoms at work and at war in this world. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. And if you reject Christ and His kingdom, you belong to the kingdom of Satan. There is no neutrality in matters of faith in Christ. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm uncertain. No, you are certain. You don't belong to Him. Therefore, you belong over here. There is no middle ground. Now pay attention to what Jesus does next. After making this definitive declaration in verse 23, he, he follows this declaration with an illustration. An illustration demonstrating the spiritual danger of not receiving Christ as your Lord. Look at verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, deserts, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes... It finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, how do we interpret this illustration illustration from Jesus. Well, first of all, we have to remember it's an illustration, so we're not to take everything literally, just like we didn't take everything in verses 21 through 22 literally. Jesus really isn't, he didn't show up at Satan's house, kick open his door, put him in a headlock and take all of his stuff. Okay? Jesus is speaking in a parabolic way. 
So what do we take away from this? Well, at first glance, what Jesus talks about in these, in these three verses, it seems strange and, and it can be confusing. But friends, don't miss what Jesus just said. It is illuminating. It is illuminating. What Jesus is doing here is he's tying these two events together. What, what occurred when, when he cast out the demon from this man and healed him, he's tying that story and that event with the need for the crowd to make a decision to follow him. He's bringing these two stories together. And he's basically saying, after resting his case, that he was not involved in any kind of satanic magic, and that that was just ludicrous and lacked any common sense. They should be embarrassed that they made such an argument. And then he calls for a decision. He basically then says, let, 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 me, let me ask you this. What good would it do this man? This man I just healed. This man I just removed this demon out of. What good would it do if this demon who no longer took residence up in him but instead of allowing something greater to take up residence in him, he simply just cleans up his life. Wouldn't he be better off? I mean, any better than not having a demon who makes you mute? But what? Jesus says, what if the demon returned and found the house empty. The man has cleaned up his life. He's gone to AA. Gone to marriage counseling. Stopped doing the things he used to do. But the house is empty. What do you think is going to happen? Jesus says, he's moving back in. And he's bringing some really bad roommates. Friends, this point that Jesus is making is stark. Please, please hear this. We were not created to live empty lives. Something is going to take up residency within you. We weren't made to live empty lives. Something is going to take up residence in you. The question is, what will it be? Or better, whom will it be? Now, I think we're supposed to take what Jesus just said and connect it with what He said at the end of last week's text. I think we're to connect some, some dots here. But if you remember how Jesus ended His teaching on the, the Lord's Prayer, He tells us we're, we're to go to God, we're to address Him as a Father, believing He's going to give good gifts to His children. And He says this at the end of verse 13, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Connect the dots. 
Remember what we talked about last week? I'll reiterate it again. When Jesus makes this claim about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had not been given yet like He would at Pentecost. And once that happens at Pentecost, where will the Holy Spirit be given? To people who believe in Jesus and where will the Holy Spirit dwell? Within them. See, we must have the Spirit of God taking up residence within us or we will be worse off than if we cleaned up our lives and got our house in order. Going to AA, getting over your addiction, stopping your destructive habits may look impressive, but if God doesn't take up residency in you, you are far worse off. Feel the weight of this this morning. God didn't bring you here this morning to tickle your ears. He brought you here to throw you a life preserver. Bishop J.C. Ryle, who I have quoted numerous times throughout this sermon series, and we'll probably quote him many more times, he puts it this way. There is no safety except through Christianity. The house must not only be swept, a new tenant must be introduced. The outward life must not be decorated with formal trappings of religion. No. The power of vital religion must be experienced in the inner man. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. End quote. Do you get what Jesus is saying? In order to be convinced of Christ's glory and to be committed to His kingdom, you must experience genuine conversion. You just can't get religion. You need more than just some better belief systems. You need, in the words of Jesus, to be born again. You must be born again. Listen to this conversation Jesus had with the religious leader in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here was a religious man who didn't do what the crowd did. He didn't accuse Jesus of being in cahoots with Satan. If anything, we think he gets a gold star. He says, well, it's clear you must have been doing this from the hand of God. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, that's not enough. You're on the right road, but you haven't arrived. You must be born again. You were born in a miraculous way that was not of your choosing. Physically, the same must happen spiritually. You must be born again. No alternative. Now, what happens next is, is in some ways sad and yet comical. Verses 27 through 28. Think about hearing these words from Jesus. And he's just said all that he has said. And we're told then, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the woman that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. <laughs> Did you, did you catch what just happened? Jesus said all that he did. And a woman in the crowd, so amazed by what Jesus has said, says, your mother must be blessed. I mean, Mary, she must be blessed. And Jesus uses this opportunity to reiterate that the one who is blessed is not the one who gave birth to me. The one who's blessed is not the one who has physical descendancy and kinship to me. It's those who respond to my words with faith and obedience. There is no tears in the Christian faith. There are those, no matter who they are, who believe and obey. In other words... It's those who are convinced and committed to Christ and His kingdoms. Those are the ones who belong to Him. Now, let's end our time by going back to the question we began. question I posed at the beginning, if Jesus really is who the Bible says He is, the fountain of eternal life, Savior of of the world, and why doesn't everyone who comes in contact with him worship him and love him? Why is that? Well, we're going to discover a number of things over the next few weeks, but here's what we discover from today's passage. 
People fail to worship Christ and commit their life to Him because there is an evil one, an enemy that keeps them from seeing the glory of Christ. And the only way for people to see is to be granted the miracle of spiritual sight and by, be, by being given the Holy Spirit. Is that what you believe? Do you believe people just don't believe simply because we haven't made a good enough argument? As if maybe you presented your argument better. Maybe if you answered all their objections, they would say, Sign me up. No. There is a spiritual battle for their souls taking place. Now, I'm in no way saying that because Satan blinds them from seeing that they are not responsible for their rejection. We're going to see that next week. But we got to start here. Listen to be close to these words from the Apostle Paul. I think it gets right at what we just heard this morning. These words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 6. As Paul talks about this new covenant that is greater than the old covenant, and he says that this new covenant called the gospel, everybody doesn't see it. It's veiled to some. And then he says in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It's not that Jesus isn't glorious. If you're wondering, why is Jesus, if He's so glorious, according to Scripture, why doesn't everybody see it? Because Satan has put blinders on. Well, then who can be saved? Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul just said? No one can see the glory of Christ because their eyes are blinded by the enemy of this world and the only way they can see is the same God who spoke into the darkness in Genesis 1 and said, let there be light, speaks into their heart and a miracle takes place and they can see. And they go, He's glorious. I'm a sinner. He is the great Savior. He is Lord of all. Friends, it, it is imperative in light of all that we've seen and heard and reflected on today that we don't believe that commitment to Christ involves mere intellectual choosing. Intellectual assent. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Muslim or I'm not a, I'm not a Buddhist. I, I, like, I, like, I think the Jesus stuff is good. I like Christianity. I like, the, I like the thought of having someone die for my sins so that I can, 
I can go to heaven. That doesn't make someone a Christian. Doesn't make someone a Christian. Someone becomes a Christian when they experience a spiritual awakening. They experience the new birth. So let me ask you this question. Have you been born again? I don't mean, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe the Bible? Were you once dead and now you're alive? Is the Spirit of God in you or not? Anything less is not Christianity and it's detrimental because there are people filling pews of churches all around this city and all around this country and possibly in this room who think because they show up at a church and they sign, click the bubble that says Christian over any other religion that they are good with God. Have you been born again? Has God opened your eyes to see your need for a Savior and shown you Jesus, the sin-bearing substitute? Has He broken your heart over your sin and made your heart sore that you are forgiven? Not because you deserve it, but because He is full of grace and love and mercy. If You cannot answer that question. I've got good news for you. That's why you're here this morning. Today is the day of salvation. You say, what do I do then? Oh, do what we learned last week. Jesus says, he who asks will receive. He who seeks will find. He who knocks will not be turned away. If you ask for the Spirit, you'll get them. Don't leave here this morning not asking. Because I can say on the authority of God's Word, if you ask, you will be saved. You will be born Now, if you have received the Spirit, what are we to do? For all those who have experienced the new birth, we're to live out our faith dependent upon the Spirit. We need not only the Spirit to make us a Christian, we need the Spirit to do everything the Bible says we're to do as a Christian. Romans 12, 11, Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. You're going to be a Christian, you, you can't be half-hearted. You can't kind of be, oh, I'm a little in. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent, passionate, on fire, burning is what that word means. Be fervent in spirit. It doesn't mean our spirit, but because of the spirit, you can serve the Lord.
Here's what I hope we've taken away from this morning. Everything about Christianity is impossible apart from supernatural aid. This isn't just an ancient book that happens to be true and therefore we just we believe it. And then once we believe it, we seek to align our lives. God has to transform us and meet us and empower us or we will bear no fruit. But praise be to God that He hasn't left us to, to ourselves, that He has given us His Spirit in full measure. So let's pray now that the Spirit would help us. O Spirit of God, as we were reminded by our Savior, the Spirit blows where it wills like the wind blows. I pray that the Spirit has made a way through this room this morning, blowing through. And people who have heard about Jesus before, people who have been listening for weeks or months, but have surrendered their life to Him and called Him their Savior, I pray that this morning the Spirit of God has swept the air like a wind. And today, they would be born again. And for every single one of us, Lord, that have experienced the new birth, may the Spirit send us out of here to live differently. Not simply because we believe certain things, because we belong to you and your spirit dwells in us and we're compelled to live differently and be different oh Lord I thank you for every person who's walked through the doors and has come here this morning and has heard this word protect them from the evil one who would want to snatch the seed and take it away and they would leave here this morning. Any of us would leave here this morning. And not take in and assess with sobriety and gravity what we've heard this morning. God help us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.